guys can be seated. Oh, man, worship is so good. Uh, one of the things I love about that song where it says, um, you'll never let us go, it, and it, what it speaks to me in that song is that um, it's not because we're that cool, it's because he is faithful to himself, which I just love. Um, so good morning, Hill City. Thank you guys for coming today. Um, we're glad you're here. Um, man, I seriously could use some water, but I'll make it. Um, I just want to let you guys know our desire here is to really make sure that we light up our city, the city of Thornton, with the tangible love of Jesus, both, not both, but spiritually, physically, and socially. And um, we really believe that God wants us to do that here in Thornton. We want to be used, and we want to make an impression, not just for Hill City, but for us as the church. Uh, so if this is your first time visiting with us today, thank you guys for coming. Um, we want to make sure that we can connect with you back at the Welcome Center in the lobby. If you happen to have filled out or gotten one of the kind of bright colored uh, pieces of paper, you guys can fill that out. We have a small treat for you. But we really want to be able to connect with you and meet with you and maybe answer any questions you guys might have. So after service, uh, there will be somebody back there to meet you. Um, and we want to mention a few things that are coming up. Uh, in the future, uh, we have Growth Track coming up September 8th, um, which is a little ways away, but we're going to have sign-up starting next week. So that's September 28th all the way through the 29th, and there's four classes for Growth Track, and we basically want you to know who we are, what our values are, what our beliefs are, uh, what your gifts and talents are, and how you can use those to serve the church, because it's not just about coming to church on Sunday and listening to the person speaking, John or whoever it may be, but really getting involved and getting connected um, through that, through life group and all these other things, but it starts with growth track. So if you're like, man, how do I get connected? How do I meet people and get deeper in my understanding of who Hill City is and what they believe and the direction they're going? Come to growth track. There will be childcare and breakfast provided. So make sure that uh, when signups show up next week that you guys are ready to sign up because space will be limited. And then the next thing we have, we have an all church meeting on July 31st at 7 p.m. So make sure you put that in your calendar. All this stuff is in your bulletin. Um, so make sure you look at that. Um, where We're going to be giving some updates on um, discussing our consultation, the merger updates, and just things are going to be going into the future as well. And then... Um, yeah, it'll just be a time to get some clarity on some of those things. So I'm going to have the ushers come up, and we're going to um, take our offering. So um, when we think about offering, I really think that it's important that we don't just see this as like a time to like give our tithe and like, oh, God right requires my money. Like, yes, that is biblical, um, but really it's like we want you guys to be generous um, in all areas of your life, and tithing is one of those. Um, it's, it's a huge part of trusting God. It's kind of saying, God, I trust you with my finances and all areas of our life. And sometimes that can be really hard to let go of that piece. Uh, but in Malachi 3.10, it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, right? Like this is his house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you the blessing until there is no more need. And I'm not preaching like a, a health and wealth gospel, like you give a bunch of your money and then God's just going to bless you with more. I mean, God is faithful to himself, as we said before. So it's just this idea of we're trusting in God that he provides for us and we can trust him with what we have. So we're going to pray and then for the offering and then um, Hannah's going to come on up and speak an awesome message to us. So. 
Father God, Lord, we just thank you for today, God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, your love, your patience, um, just who you are, God. You are so good and so faithful. Again, not just to us, but because of who you are, you're faithful to yourself, God, and what you want to accomplish. Lord, we just pray, Lord, that our lives would be a reflection of you, God, that we would take steps each and every day to humble, humble ourselves and strive to um, just be the light of Jesus, God. And we just pray for Hannah today as she comes up and speaks. God, I pray that you would just uh, give us the ears to hear your word, Lord, and just give her uh, the voice to speak what you've given to her and put on her mind, Lord. We pray that you just give us um, just the heart, Lord, not just to hear this message and be like, oh, that was, that was really good, but really just apply it to our lives. And um, again, just to bring you glory and honor. We ask this in your name. Amen. any of you guys have ever taken some sort of philosophy class? Has anybody ever taken a philosophy class and like some random class for uh, a degree or maybe you took something in high school? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I hate philosophy. So I, I, that sounds really strong, especially coming from somebody who's trying to do a degree program that uh, is full of people who usually love philosophy and like asking really tough questions. Like if we were all living in a simulation, how would we know? We wouldn't just live your life. Stop asking stupid questions. That's how I feel about philosophy. But there is a famous, there's a very famous uh, problem that's been popularized by TV and videos and different things. And it's a problem that's often posed in philosophy question, uh, classes and it's called the trolley problem. I don't know if any of you have heard of this before. But the whole idea is that you are standing by some trolley tracks and there's an oncoming trolley. Doesn't have anybody in it, don't worry about it. it, must be computerized or something. And you're standing by a lever and you see that the trolley is going to hit five people who've been tied to the tracks. Now, if you pull the lever that you are standing next to, it will divert the trolley and it will instead only, it'll go on a different set of tracks and instead only hit one person bound on the tracks. So do you choose to pull the lever knowing that it will kill one person instead of five? No cheating when you're thinking about this, okay? You can't say, oh, I, I jump on the trolley and pull an action movie and be able to figure out how to stop it. You have to decide between those two. Don't worry, you don't have to share it with us. We won't, we won't take the time to judge everyone. But if you thought that problem was too easy, like many students have over the years, they've actually come up with several different versions of this just to make it harder. So what if instead of standing by the lever, because you thought that was too easy, you're like, yeah, kill the one person. Or maybe you didn't. Um, you're standing on a bridge over the tracks and there's a very fat man standing on the bridge next to you and he's kind of like leaning over. And you see that if you just gave him a little push, he would stop the trolley and it would save six people. That's actually been, you know, thrown out there to classes before. Does that make it different? Would that change your answer at all? 
Well, for some people, this is really easy because it's like, no, the right thing is never to kill anyone, right? Uh, it was funny, I was watching a, some sort of recorded class online and the professor said, well, why is it so different to push a man over than it is to pull a lever and let the trolley run into one person? What if instead the fat man was just standing on a trap door and you had to pull a lever to let him down? Does that make it any different? And of course, there were students arguing back and forth. But the only real conclusion anyone ever comes to is nobody wants to be stuck inside of the trolley problem, right? Nobody actually wants to be in the position where they have to choose life or death for another person. And there's really no right answer for this in the sense that nobody who hears it is ever fully satisfied with the option they choose. I guess there are some people out there who kind of try to put up a front and say, no, I, I could do that in a heartbeat. But most of us really probably couldn't do that. And this question usually leads to a discussion of how you decide what is right and what is wrong. And for some people, right is always defined by what causes the least amount of suffering. What will cause the least amount of suffering for the most amount of people? And for other people, it's what's most useful to everyone. Would it change it if the guy, you know, if among the five there was somebody who uh, could uh, cure cancer or something like that? Would it change it if the one person on the tracks was your mom? There's, there's a big difference there, right? So what is useful for the most people? And then finally, right is based on a code. And many of us sitting here, because you're in church, would probably agree with this. It's based on a code that's outside of a human decision. It's based on a code of what is always right and always wrong, no matter the situation you're in. But this is a really human thing to define. You don't really see herds of wildebeest having some sort of conference on how uh, morally right or wrong it is for lions to come in and thin their herds. You don't really have sharks, you know, really having trouble thinking about if it's right to bite off somebody's limb if they got in their way. And you don't usually hear ants, like, standing and staring up at you and screaming because your kid, like, dumped water on their ant pile and totally destroyed everything they've lived for. That doesn't really happen. <laughs> At least that we, I guess that we can understand. But humans are the ones who talk about justice and injustice, fairness and unfairness. In fact, it seems like more and more these days you do hear that a lot, the term justice being thrown around. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but at every turn when we experience those debates of justice and injustice, fairness and unfairness, and then we look at the animal kingdom, it's hard to reconcile that with the idea that we just evolved. Because what gave us that sense of rightness and wrongness that the rest of the animal kingdom doesn't really seem to have? And that's where the problem is. Because as much as people would like to deny that there's an ultimate right or wrong beyond what makes us feel good or hurts the least amount of people, there's no way to back up that claim unless humans are meant inwardly to have some sense of right and wrong. 
Because even if you, you know, pull the, well, some cultures are different than others. It's okay some places to do this, and it's not okay in other places. There's a pretty standard set of things that aren't considered to be great in a lot of different cultures. And so C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity makes two conclusions about this. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they can't really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave that way. They know what he calls the law of nature, what's right and wrong, but they break it. Of course, like I said, you all know this, you're sitting in church on a Sunday, so you might or probably do have some sense of how you determine right and wrong. But this is actually a question that relates a lot to the existence of God, who he is, and and what he really has planned for the world. Because there had to have been somebody who put that innate sense of justice in people. It seems to go beyond choosing the most pleasure or avoiding the the most pain. And C.S. Lewis also talks about, we only know what crooked is because we understand what is straight. And if we can say, like C.S. Lewis hinted at, that mistreating children is wrong, or stealing from senior citizens is wrong, or denying help to desperate people is wrong, or turning your back on your friends is wrong, and then also regularly ignore situations where that happens, or you know, kind of justify it in our minds why we couldn't help, then there has to be someone beyond the scope of humanity and yet intrinsically involved in our being that came up with the concept of justice and put a sense for it in us. To have true justice, you have to have a true judge. One of the biggest questions or problems, you could call it, with Christianity that people often have difficulty with is the concept of hell, because why could a loving God actually send people there for eternity? You see, though people actually want a judge, they don't want somebody to judge anyone. They're okay with talking about a judge for the real crimes against humanity, the big scale ones that we all agree are really evil, but nobody wants to sit before the judge's seat and talk about our lives. Because it's actually our own idea of right and wrong that matters to us. Our own idea of being in a situation that's unfair. But that's not true justice. We would need an actual fair arbitration where somebody who knows everything, who knows all the facts, who knows you and the person who wronged you at a very deep level to make a judgment. To have a just judge would mean each of us would have to be judged on what we do. Whether you believe in God or not, I think there's an innate sense in all of us that if there is some standard, then we're not really living up to it. So we're going to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be jumping around quite a bit in the uh, letter of Romans today between 1 and chapter 8, but stick with me. So in Romans, Paul lays out a really intense argument that has a lot to do with justice. Starting in chapter 1, he addresses the idea of God's judgment on all the evil that has happened with humanity, specifically the people who weren't Jews, the Gentiles. And in 1, 18 through 20, it reads, 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis called in that quote, the natural law. There's evidence for God in creation, in the human longing for justice. There's evidence all around us. And that evidence condemns us because there's no reason you can come to the conclusion there is no God after seeing all of that. But Paul continues in this section, and he talks a lot about the depravity of the Gentiles, how twisted people have become. And in a sense, you can imagine all the Jewish Christians in the audience going, yeah, go get them, those terrible Gentiles. We let them in here with us, but we don't really like them. And that, it's you know, been proven that that's kind of the structure of the book because the next chapter, he turns and he says, oh, but you, you Jewish Christians... You had the Torah, you had the Old Testament, you had God's law, you had his revelation. So you are even more so without excuse and stand under God's wrath. It'd be like if somebody wrote a letter to a church today and they said, they started talking, out, uh, talking about how horrible it was the lives people came from and their drunkenness and their partying and whatever else they did. And then he turned to the people with the Bible apps on their phones and the tithe check already written out. And he said, but you guys, you knew even more because you knew how to treat others well, to take care of the widow and the orphan and the refugee. You knew to feed the hungry, to do justice by the oppressed. You knew that nothing was more important than allegiance to me and you didn't do it. But what this sets us up for is one of the most famous concepts in Romans. And if you have a verse memorized from the Bible, this might, this might be it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is important. And if you think you've heard it all before, please don't just let it pass you by because of that. You're sitting in that seat right now. I'm standing right here with a microphone. Believe it or not, I don't know why they gave it to me, right? But whether you think of yourself as a good person or not, or a good parent, or a good citizen, uh, you don't meet the standards of the ultimate judge. I don't meet the standards of the ultimate judge. There's no one who does, and there's no amount of religiosity or church going or anything else that can actually change that. Because every human is fundamentally flawed in a way that means, although we know there is a right and a wrong and there should be a right choice to make, we're incapable of seeing it through on our own, in our own lives or on a wider scale. In fact, we're broken to the point that we should receive judgment because we've made ourselves the judges. We've decided what's right and wrong based on our own selfishness or what serves us best. We've acted as enemies of the one who created everything, and as such, only is the one who can be the judge. Yet in Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... 
Christ died for us. God has provided the way out. We've stood in court. We've been brought to the bench. The judge has said, you're guilty, but we are going to pay the price. Uh, It's interesting, though, because you see at the cross, we don't just see God's justice. We also see his mercy. A lot of people have problems with the cross. Isn't it just divine child abuse? Why couldn't God just say, your sins are gone, and it all be over with? Why do you have to kill your own son for other people? And there's actually a version of the trolley problem, believe it or not, that looks like this. The person by the lever is the trolley maker, and the one person on the tracks who has to die for the other people is his son. And he has to choose whether it's worth saving five lives to sacrifice his own son. Let's go back to Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified or declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You know that there is no other religion on earth where justice and mercy are perfectly balanced like this. Either you have usually a God of complete justice and wrath. You have no idea if you're ever going to make it to eternity, if that religion has some idea of eternity. Or you have a God who is completely loving. And instead, we get a balance. Christ became the sacrifice for every sin that was committed beforehand. The ages and ages of people that the righteous judge had left unpunished, he became the redemption price. Because redemption means to buy back something. That there was a price that had to be paid, and in Jesus that price was paid. But this isn't the trolley problem. If you were a little disturbed by that example of somebody choosing to kill their own son... Yeah, that's okay, because that's not what happened here. This was the conductor deciding himself to sacrifice himself, to throw himself in front of the trolley and pay the dues that the people on the track owed. In fact, you could go a step further and say the people on the track were the one who, ones who cut the brakes. But instead of berating them for their stupidity or giving them the consequence, he chose to take that consequence on himself. Because if God had just waved a magic God wand and made all the brokenness disappear, God would not be just. Justice requires a price to be paid. Think of the last time you were cut off in traffic, okay? Tell me you didn't think, I really hope there's a police a person in a car up there who sees them, who sees them speeding past. Justice naturally requires a price. We want people to see justice. It's not a wrong thing to want to see justice. But at the cross, we actually see justice and mercy come together. There's one who demands the price for all the brokenness, all the humans uh, who have hurt other humans, humans who have abused this world he made, humans putting themselves in the place of God, 
But that same one who says there's a price to be paid has paid the price. The only trolley problem that fits is the trolley maker deciding to sacrifice himself. A willing, perfect sacrifice dies for his enemies so they can be released from prison. But interestingly, the story doesn't stop here. And this is what some people miss. If, if you feel like you've been a Christian for a long time, you've heard all this, listen up here if you're falling asleep. Because Christianity is not about the great balance. It's not about a perfect balance of mercy and justice. And Paul hints at this in Romans 5.15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, he's talking about Adam here and sin coming into the world, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Justice and mercy meet at the cross, but grace overflows in the resurrection. For those who actually believe in Jesus and choose to be his disciples and accept the free gift, there is a day of resurrection that happens in the future, but is also happening right here and now. The gift is overflowing beyond the bounds of anything we could have hoped for or imagined. This grace is never-ending, and it's undeserved, because the sacrifice keeps on going, and because Jesus rose from the dead, we share in his victory over death, over sin, over every power that comes against us. Though we should have been condemned, the judge declares us righteous, and now we have the chance to live in the here and now, bringing justice and mercy to the world around us. We may continue to live in an unjust world for a long time yet, in a world where there's suffering and sin, and we have the power as God's agents to bring light into the darkness and declare what, what he's done for us. If you actually truly understand this and it has soaked deep into your soul, the message of the cross, but also the message of resurrection, so that nothing has more power over you than the truth, then you'll be suddenly a lot less concerned that you get justice for yourself and much more concerned that you're actually looking around and seeking justice for other people. You're going to be a lot less concerned that you get the mercy and forgiveness you think you deserve from others and a lot more concerned that you show that mercy and forgiveness to other people. Because since we've been led up off the track and we've been released from the courtroom, and we've seen the miraculous work of God in our lives, we recognize the only important thing about our lives is praising him, knowing him, and sharing him with the world. As the people say from the trolley tracks, we have the privilege to bring the fight for justice, the love of mercy, and the overflow of God's grace to the world around us. If you knew this was true, really, really true, what would your life look like?
I'm going to close with a section from Romans 8. And let me just say, if you are, are a Christian already, but you've been really struggling, there is nothing, nothing better than reading Romans 8 over and over and over again. I really challenge you to do that. But we're going to pick up in verse 31, and it says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus has died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of us who are Christians, like I said, this is a great passage to read, but it's a message we forget a lot. And I think sometimes we need to hear, you never outgrow the message of the cross. And it's not because you need somebody, you don't need Jesus to be sacrificed for you every day. It's not that sort of guilt complex thing. It's more about remembering the cross because you need to remember who you are covered by the blood of the cross and able now to join in with him in bringing new creation to this earth. And if you are sitting here and you're still unsure and you're not sure why you're here or if you believe in God, this isn't a vague philosophical question. Maybe you've pondered the existence of God or the truth of Christianity so long that it's become that in your head, but this is actually about your life. And it's about a God who cares about your life deeply enough that he sacrificed himself for you so that you can live to be all that you're designed to be. Just want you to know if you are thinking that or if you need prayer for any reason that we would love to pray for you and there's people here who will hang around up front and if you want to pray with any of us or just share something that's on your heart that you've been struggling with just pray that you would uh, come up and just be bold and ask for prayer for that i'm going to go ahead and, and pray for us together lord uh we just thank you for the message of the cross that mercy and justice are balanced, but that your grace overflows, that there is nothing anyone in this room has done or could do that would dismiss the power of your love and your grace. Thank you for the sacrifice of the cross, and we thank you for the resurrection power that lives in every single person who believes in you, who follows you. Lord, we pray if we've taken this power for granted, if we don't realize we live in victory, if we're not looking around and seeing how we can bring kingdom life to the people around us, to the, to the nation around us, to the world around us, 
that we would repent and that we would look for ways to impart your mercy and your grace to other people and bring justice in dark places. Lord, I do pray for anyone here today who's struggling with whether they need to surrender their lives to you. Pray that they wouldn't hesitate any longer, Lord, that they would take the first step on that journey. And we do pray for all of us, Lord, that we would grow and strengthen in our faith, that we would have greater maturity, and that we would remember the cross every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for sticking around. Um, Have a good afternoon and a good week, and we'll see you back next week, hopefully.